Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Animales Welcome to Freedom of Species, Animal Advocacy on the Airwaves. The program is broadcast from 3CR Studios in Melbourne, Australia. Live streaming and recent podcasts are available via the 3CR and Freedom of Species websites and iTunes. I'm Emma Townsend and joining me in the studio are my fellow FOS presenters Kate Gracie and Adam Cardellini. And our guest is Lawrence Pope, a successful campaigner for bats particularly for stopping a massive culling of flying foxes in the Royal Botanic Gardens years ago in Melbourne. Uh, He's been a great campaigner for cats, dogs in relation to traps, horses in particular, jumps racing, and he's also the author of The Teeth of Beasts and Some Touch of Pity, which give rare and transparent insights into these journeys of activism and campaigning in all its grit and seldom welcome grace. We'll touch on a few of those issues because there are many, um, including the new wild dog bounty in Victoria later on. Welcome and thank you for coming back into the studio today, Lawrence. Thank you. Good to be here. I understand you're from VAFA, which is the Victorian Advocates for Animals. Can you explain what is VAFA? Who are they? What do they do? What Everything. I want to know what, what VAFA is all about. Well, the Victorian Advocates for Animals... Um, came out of the Victorian Animal Welfare Association, which years ago I set up to provide a, an alternative voice for other species, spe- specifically in Melbourne, um, on a range of issues that were um, hot around the uh, late in the late 1990s and uh, didn't seem to be being addressed by uh, some of the other groups. Of course, you have a myriad of issues and a small number of groups and people and everybody does their best to make a difference in a particular area but there are a couple of um, um, pockets that I thought needed um, special focus and um, that's why we established the Victorian Advocates for Animals and we basically speak out on anything to do with um, other species and uh, offer an alternative um, viewpoint on perhaps conservation and the way forward for them. And when you say we, who is we? Well, it's myself and um, other other volunteers. Okay. Other other people have been um, advocating for animals for uh, across the time. You get um, people who are members of multiple groups, um, uh, Duck Rescue or uh, Coalition Protection of Resources or or um, members of um, conservation societies and so forth. And um, um, so we've just yeah been out there trying to um, uh, make a make a difference uh, in the media and uh, in general public. Is um, are there a lot of volunteers involved in the organisation? Well, recently I set up um, Friends of uh, Bats and Bush Care, and I have we have forty one 
uh, volunteers in that, 37 of which are vaccinated to um, handle uh, flying foxes. You need a special vaccination to do that. Um, so that was very encouraging. But um, with the um, um, VAFA, uh, I haven't been as proactive on with that group as I have been in the past. I've, I've taken a, some, a bit of a step step back in terms of um, actively campaigning um, and to focus on uh, flying fox conservation. I feel primarily that's where your heart is with the flying foxes. Well, these days, yeah, because the need is so um, great, uh, we still have a decline in uh, grey-headed flying fox population down the east coast. Um, we're not sure why that is. We're having starvation events on the east coast of uh, New South Wales and in South Queensland. So from a, um, a population of possibly around 15 to 20 million in 1900, we've got 300,000 or so left, which is a 98% or so um, pop- reduction in population, mainly wow. through habitat loss. Yeah, can we just kind of backtrack a, a, a bit there? Can you tell us about like bats and, and their role in the, in the ecology, why, why they're so important to protect in the first place? Yeah, there are two two families of uh, bats. You, there's the little bats, which are the insectivorous bats, um, and they're numerous, um, uh, and there are 26 species of those in Victoria. Then you have the mega bats, which are the big um, vegetarian bats, if you will, ne- <laughs> nectar, pollen, and fruit, uh, and they um, pollinate and seed disperse large areas of native forest around the coastal areas primarily. Um, so they're very important, particularly now that our forests are quite fragmented. They'll carry genetic material, genetic floral material from one isolated stand of forest to another, thereby outcross pollinating and allowing healthy, healthy forest growth. So instead of those forests becoming inbred, um, you have a pollinator that's travelling a long distance and uh, spreading that genetic material uh, widely. So they're they're like all our pollinators, um, they're very important, bees and birds and bats. Um, we need to look after their conservation and take care of them so they can continue to take care of the forest that they've been doing uh, such a good job on for about um, two million years at least. Flying foxes have been um, in Australia uh, and with large populations. We have four main species of uh, uh, flying fox in Australia. Um, if you go up into Queensland and the northern parts of Australia, you'll probably see mainly black flying foxes and um, spectacle flying foxes. And if you go a little bit further inland, you'll see little red flying foxes. They're a gorgeous little nectar bat and um, with little translucent wings, and they're very they're very friendly little little guys. Uh, and they're still in significant numbers in in the north. Um, there's very little uh, reliable um, data on their populations, but just anecdotally and through you know, um, surveys of their colonies, they look still to be in reasonable, reasonably strong numbers up in the north. As you travel further down the east coast, going south down the east coast, uh, that's where the grey-headed flying fox um, um, territory begins. Their, their range is from South Queensland right down to Melbourne and now uh, in the Otways and in right as a very small colony at Adelaide now, which may or may not be viable. So they're, they're changing where they locate? Yeah, they've shifted down around the coast. Um, we think in response to... Um, 
climate change. It's about one degree warmer down here now than it was 100 years ago. And even if you think of yourself in the 60s, although most of you don't look like you're old enough to remember the 60s, but uh, we used to have about six frosts a year in Melbourne, really thick, good frosts. And now we have two, if we're lucky. If we're lucky, we'll get one or two. So there's definitely been a, a shift in... Uh, temperature around the in the southern areas, which just doesn't get quite as cold quite as uh, often in the south. And it was also around the same time uh, that they started to move. It was about 10 years after we began to plant native trees because, again, in the 60s, we were, we were there was a sort of a growing consciousness in the late 60s and early 70s to stop planting European trees. We weren't living in Europe. We finally realised, looked at the map really hard, no, this isn't Europe. Well, <laughs> let's have a look what we've got here. Nice trees here. Absolutely, you know, surprise, surprise, we've got beautiful native trees and plants here. Let's plant them. And so people did in large numbers. Now, those trees have are now mature. Um, any of the flowering gums, the grevilleas, the coastal banksias, all provide valuable food sources for the grey-headed flying fox. Now, it's um, it's principally a, a nectar, pollen and fruit bat. People call them fruit bats, and they do eat fruit, and they're an important part of their diet, but their, their most favourite food is, is pollen and nectar. Okay. Um, they've got very long tongues and they get them in. And, of course, they go into the flowers and they, they their faces get covered in pollen and that's how they function as pollinators. Okay. Mm. So when you say they, they cover vast dis- distances, do the, do, the one, do the populations actually fly that whole distance? Have they got like a, 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 a route that they cover or are they...? Yeah, they, they're interesting, Trace. If you, if you sort of... If you wanted to design something to... Um, uh, design a, a machine to travel from forest to forest and place to place and to maximise pollinisation and seed dispersal because remember they're also dispersing thousands of seeds a night every time they eat a piece of uh, a, a fig or so forth. They digest it within about 15 minutes and then poo the seeds out. So they crush up the fruit in the roof of their mouth. They squeeze all the juice out and the small seeds. They swallow that and then they spit out the pulp. And those those sort of um, roof of your mouth shaped little little uh, spats under the Morton Bay fig tree. There, the the flying fox there. He spat the uh, spat the the hard stuff out of the out of the fruit, and he's retained the the juice. And some of the seeds go down, of course, as well. And he'll digest that in about fifteen minutes, and then out it comes. Now. Hopefully, um, there you have another tree being, you know, potentially potentially grow, uh, and on that spot. But so to answer your question, it, there's every camp, every flying fox colony and camp exchanges its membership overwhelmingly all the time. Now there are a small number of residents that stay in the one camp. So it's like you imagine 100 bus stations from here to Sydney down the coast. You'll get some people that really like that particular bus station and won't ever go home. They'll just sort of stay there, hang around there, you know. But the others will stay, Most 90% will stay for a few days or a few weeks or a couple of months, depending on what's flowering and fruiting locally. So they'll stay there during the day, sleep, socialise, and then as the sun goes down, they leave and they'll fly within anywhere within 30 kilometres of that camp where there's a flowering or fruiting tree, they will then go out and feed on that flowering and fruiting tree and then go back to the colony site uh, as, the sun is, um, as the sun is rising in the morning uh, to resume their activities. It's, it's a, to see a flying fox camp and to see its, uh, its functioning, 
how they all go out in the evening and come back. You're watching something that's been happening for two million years. You're actually watching an ancient, incredibly ancient reenactment of the creation of this landscape of this country, the floral botanic landscape of this country. Um, so it's a magical thing to see, and I would urge everybody to go and see it. It is. Um, I, I know at Abbotsford Convent, when you mm. that's under a root of bats, and you when they do their their flight over each night it's amazing and there's just hundreds and thousands of them setting mm. off and it's extraordinary mm. sight that's the yeah that's the Kew colony it's at Yarraben Park um and um that fly out uh yeah I think it's a world-class wildlife event um it happens all around Australia and um the you know we really have got magical things happening on our on our doorstep now those animals of course a lot of the ones that you see going overhead at the moment. If you look, and it looks like it's got a little bomb attached to it, that's actually a baby. So uh, what, the, under, on, Holding on the belly? Holding across the belly, right. um, strapped across her belly with its feet into her side and its mouth attached to a nipple. Wow. Remembering they're mammals, so they're milk, they're, they have to be fed milk. Um, so mum goes out with bub for about four or five weeks and she has to not only fly through the night with a a weight attached to pretty much one side. Um, she's got to find food, navigate all the dangers in the urban environment, which includes backyard fruit tree netting. Um, it's extremely dangerous. Uh, and barbed wire um, in uh, along fences next to fruit trees. Telegraph um, lines, perhaps? Electrocution, yes, yeah. a lot get electrocuted. So... You know, it's a very dangerous thing, and that's what she does every every night for five weeks. Then she has to push Bub off into a creche area in the colony where the mothers all, they create a creche area where the Bubs get pushed off. Because the Bubs don't want to go. They scream and want to hang on to mum, um, but they have to push them off when they get too heavy after about five or six weeks. And so the Bubs get pushed in there, and they have to wait until she comes back. Now, if mum doesn't come back, then Bub um, starves to death, and that happens all too much in... In, urban, in the urban environment. We're speaking with Lawrence Pope, um, a campaigner for over two decades, and at the moment we're talking about um, the issue of flying foxes, specifically in Victoria. Um, now, Lawrence, you were mentioning how they have a lot of challenges at the moment, including the netting that's being used. Can you elaborate more on that for us? Yeah, uh, people plant fruit trees in there backyards and um, the domestic fruit tree is a, is a great thing to have um, people can you know make jam and do all the things they do with them um, unfortunately the um, the netting they can buy that's widely available um, is often of a very a wildlife unsafe variety and there's a very easy way to tell whether the netting you have is wildlife unsafe and that is if you can put your fingers through the holes it's not safe it's an unsafe kind of netting and sooner or later you're going to go out into your backyard and you'll have either a possum or a bird um, or a flying fox um, and so badly entangled in that netting that you won't. Be, it's not a matter of just shaking the net and they can run away or crawl away. The animals are very uh, suffer from strangulation injuries, from lacerations. And um, so invariably either um, the animal is uh, dead or it's dying um, or the animal is still very much alive and the people, if they're ethical people, which most Melburnians are, they call a wildlife organisation who then organise a rescuer to go out. Now if the animal's a flying fox 
um, the rescuer has to be uh, vaccinated with uh, lysovirus vaccination. It was a very small number of bats uh, carry Australian bat lysovirus. Now, you can contract the lysovirus only by being bitten or scratched. So you can, there's no chance of getting it from fruit that the bats have been in the tree, you know, moving around the tree in. Uh, they can crap all over you and wee on you and you won't get lysovirus. I have two bats at home at the moment and I've absorbed that much bat poo and wee. I, <laughs> apart from having a strange fascination for my wardrobe and hanging upside down, I, I'm, I'm completely un, untouched. Um, but the science is very clear. Lysovirus is a first cousin to rabies. Uh, it dies in the air, so it needs to get into the bloodstream of its uh, host very, very quickly. And you can only be, do that by being bitten or scratched. Now, no person has ever died um, from lysovirus after having had a vaccination, even a post-exposure vaccination. So if a general member of the public was bitten and they wouldn't get got their post-exposure shots, no, no person has ever died from lysovirus after having had it. So it's quite easy to prevent getting this virus. Yeah. And I, I have heard like when bats are being demonised, they often say, they're, oh, they're so, you know, disease ridden, be careful, they're such mm. dangerous, you know, dirty flying, you know, things that can, can harm you. If you are bitten though and you have a post-exposure shot, do you have to get to the hospital and have that shot within a certain couple of hours or...? There's no panic. Quickly, no panic. I'd move to, yeah. move to the hospital. You'd go to your doctor or to the yeah. hospital and get your post-exposure shot. Yeah. Obviously, the sooner the better. Um, but there's no, there's no panic. There's no, yeah. there's no reason to panic. The, yeah. the death toll from flying fox uh, from lysovirus is uh, three people in 100 years. Um, so it's substantially less than lightning strike. Um, I think or vending got, machines. Apparently. Vending machines, <laughs> yeah. Or men on ladders, or men and women yeah. on ladders. All that um, stuff. Falling off a chair apparently falling, is one of the biggest killers. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> yes. Uh, so yeah, I mean, yeah. The, the, you know, you're far more likely to get something something unpleasant from a tram or a hotel or something, or a, you know, um, than you are from a, a, a flying fox. But yeah. we'll, we'll, our message is always leave handling wildlife to people who know how to handle it and if you do get bitten or scratched you know see see a doctor yeah so you've been campaigning also um for like bunnings and mitre 10 and hardware stores to not sell the the netting that you're referring to that mm. causes all these fatalities and injuries mm. how's that going can are they still selling the bad stuff uh bunnings has been very good um we've been working with them for a number of years now to phase out um, the uh, wildlife unsafe netting. Because remember, if this thing is wildlife unsafe, it's also children unsafe. It's also public unsafe. Um, because if an animal is caught, then you get kids running into the backyard trying to free their furry friend and they get bitten or scratched or whatever. Um, or you get rescuers having car accidents on their way to rescue animals. You have greenhouse, you know, you have use of fuel. We had a rescue the other day involved in a serious car accident in the rain because of um, going to pick up a flying fox. It was the third animal taken out of that one householder's backyard and they still refused to remove their, their unsafe net. So to, to get back to your um, question, Bunnings, been great Bunnings only now sells without wanting to plug commercial organisations on 3CR, they only sell wildlife-safe netting now. Is wildlife-safe netting just really fine? It's netting you can't put your fingers through. 
So really small holes. Okay. Yeah, and, and, and uh, you pull black? that pull that knot black. If it's a light colour, they can see it. Um, remembering that flying foxes are sight and sound bats. They don't have sonar, so they've just got their eyes and ears. They can see about as well as a cat at mm. night. Um, they're about as smart as a cat, too. Um, whereas the little insect-eating ones, of course, they have everything. They have good eyesight, normal eyesight. They have good hearing. They also have sonar, so they're jam-packed with state-of-the-art technology. <laughs> they are um, smart. Um, so um, now MITRE 10, as you know, recently masters um, hardware, home hardware. Um, they had a great idea. They're going to take on Bunnings and they're gonna, all going to make squillions and that went downhill. Um, uh, and they have got uh, a gazillion metres of bad, unsafe netting in their store. So the the position, the, the challenge for us as advocates was to uh, intercept, if we could, that netting and talk to the people who were bought out masters, which is a group called Metcash. Um, Metcash are the largest distributors of hardware in Australia. Metcash own Mitre 10 and Home Hardware. So um, I was able to um, get in contact with the CEO of um, Metcash, uh, Ian Morris, and who put me on to their, um, their, their, the appropriate branch of their, their business. Now, um, I haven't finalised um, an agreement with, with, um, with Metcash Mitre 10, but things are looking very promising, and they were very disturbed by the photographs that I sent them. I, I tend to do things a very old-fashioned way. I'd send hard copies and letters and things like that basically because I don't have a smartphone and I have very, my technological expertise is very limited. But the bottom line, if you're thinking of people are thinking of doing advocacy, you don't have to be a whiz. Just be, um, be yourself and do things your own way. Um, the main thing is to build a, a good rapport with whoever you're dealing with. Try to let them know that you're fair income and it gets your facts straight and um, provide good evidence for the... Um, the um, the moves that you want to be made, the changes you want to be made, and um, with, within reason. For example, with Metcash, we made it very clear that it would be terrific if they would just send this netting back to China. You know, don't sell any of it in in Australia. How about just burn it? Well, poly, polyethylene. Well, how about bury it? Or, how about, I don't know. But if it goes back to China, China will send it somewhere else. Yeah, that's, that, that is true. Um, uh, if they didn't send it to somewhere where there were flying foxes, I, or, you know, it wouldn't be so bad. It's not so bad with um, and other animals and, and um, birds. It's not too bad um, because the netting they're selling is white-knitted netting. Um, but it's the flying it's, fox that seem to get caught up in anything with apertures, holes that are bigger than your, your fingertips. Mm. So they're the ones we have the particular problems with. But they've, they've said, um, but that was our first position, if you could, you know, yep. that would be ideal to just... Ship it back. Ship it back, mm-hmm. get rid of it somehow. But if they weren't prepared to do that commercially, um, the next step would be to um, agree to uh, sell out the, of the mm. product so they sell all their existing stock and then they agree not to resupply with the unsafe netting they agree to su- resupply with wildlife safe netting mm. now that means for us another 10 years of of rescues and so forth but there's yeah. still a light at the end of the tunnel you know I, 
we all look back 10 years and go, oh, where did that 10 years go? You know, it, <laughs> ha- it happens in the blink of an eye. So to be reasonable is, is a good thing to uh, – is a good strategy to offer, you know, reasonable compromises yep. on this issue. The third angle that we've been working on that's also getting close to fruition, uh, and that is the legal angle, um, the, the regulatory angle. So I've been working with um, um, people in um, – uh, the government, the branch of the Department of Environment, Land, Water and Planning. Uh, and um, it's looking very positive now that we may have some regulations put in place such that, yes, a person can net their backyard fruit tree, um, but you would have to use a kind of netting that was deemed to be wildlife safe. So that's looking very promising. So I would expect to have a, a result uh, on that um, within, a, within a few months, within six months. Wow, that's um, fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, but then yeah. having to police that. Enforcement's another Enforcement, matter. Yeah. Enforcement's another matter. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, being a, an, a regulation, um, you know, what rescuers could then do when they go around to Mr Brown's or Mr Smith's or Mr Muhammad's or Mr... Um, they can say, I'm sorry, sir, this is no longer, or madam, this is no longer a legal kind of netting. Here they could point to a regulation mm-hmm. and say, if you continue to install this netting and entang- trap animals, yes. you will be um, committing an offence. Throw them there, the book of the law. There will be, yeah, yeah. be a fine of uh, $1,000 associated <laughs> oh, yeah, with that or work. more. Mm-hmm. So that's an incentive Absolutely. to mm-hmm. remove that net and to replace it with... Uh, a net that's wildlife safe and let's face it we, you know you're talking about a very small amount of money um mm. to do the right thing yeah it sounds like sounds like the fruit bats um definitely are lucky to have you on their side but we might just go for a um a quick break uh with the some music so here it is Okay, and that was uh, The Cat Empire with Wild Animals from their Steal the Light CD. And you're listening to Freedom of Species on 3CR 855 on your radio. Um, And Lawrence, so you're talking about the flying foxes, and apart from their fantastic ecological benefit um, to the Australian environment and uh and species of trees and all that sort of jazz they're also i one of my joys of living in melbourne is seeing flying foxes if i come outside i used to live in Baldwin in the smack bang middle of the urban environment um i'd come out in the morning at about five thirty to go to work and i'd see flying foxes fly off from the tree in front of my house and it was just a joy they're one of the largest uh, i'd imagine they're one of the largest native mammals that are able to survive in our urban environments and provide a connection for people who might not otherwise see native species in in Australia. Do you think they have a benefit for us to sort of reflect on native animals and living, being able to live with native animals um, in Australia? Yeah, well, I, I agree there. It's a magical thing to be able to live in a city and, and see, you know, wildness in the heart of the heart of the city. And I would hope there'd be lots of secondary students uh, Googling and what are these animals and writing little essays and, and trying to find out more about them. And that's one of the roles that 
you know we've had is uh, um, is talking to students um, across the across the years, and I think uh, Kate uh, Holoko had a wonderful art exhibition in Federation Square, where she put up three or four hundred um, polys- um, flying foxes fiberglass. Painted. I remember that. Yes, it was yeah. fabulous. You know, um, so. And one of the things, that, of course, as people are impressed with them and, and, and look into the, the species, they can um, then, you know, look at their conservation. Mm. And if there's one message I'd get out, I guess, today, um, is if you want to do one thing to help uh, conservation native species in your own backyard, and that is uh, remove a backyard fruit tree net if you've already got one installed, um, share your fruit with wildlife. Mm. If you do that, you'll keep them alive. If they're alive, they'll travel up and down the coast pollinating and seed dispersing on your behalf, um, or if you've got barbed wire, remove any any unnecessary barbed wire in and around your uh, property. And if you can't remove it, paint it white, paint it any bright colour, because if they can see it, they'll avoid it. They'll fly around it instead of hitting it. And so we're getting about 30% of our animals coming in uh, from barbed, uh, 20% on, from barbed wire strike and about 50% from backyard fruit tree netting, which is a uh, Months of work, even if you can save them, which is often not the case. So, yeah, enjoy the, enjoy nature and take some positive steps to reduce the risks to them and to yourself. Can I, I, I just have to add there, because I have read your book, Some Touch of Pity, and you, you um, reflect on a time there where you had a bus where you would do tours to Yarra Bend to... That's right. To we see the, the flyer. <laughs> we had I the baddie bus. that's a fantastic yeah. thing. Yeah, and bring it back. The baddie bus. The baddie yeah. bus was <laughs> great. We want yeah. to bring back the baddie bus. <laughs> Could someone out there get in contact with Lawrence? Because <laughs> so the baddie bus would pick people up from all the backpackers and hotels. Yeah, and yeah. yeah. And um, but because the animals are so sort of unusual, and um, I guess people just didn't know what they were from overseas. That it wasn't uh, commercially viable on its own, but it would have been good um, as part of another tour. So for existing tours to pick up, to drop in on the colony, you know, it's 10 minutes from the city, mm. uh, they can see something that no one in the Northern Hemisphere sees. So invariably, everybody that goes to the lookout, the lookout's 50 metres from the car park. So, you know, small to medium-sized tours um, uh, are perfect for that colony site, yeah. yeah. You could join it up with the Erinsborough bus, you know, the, the, the tours that go out to neighbours in Erinsborough. And then they could do see the bats as well. Perfect. Oh, those backpackers. Oh, you mean the neighbours tour? Sorry, yeah, lost perfect. There. Yeah. So I know there's a col- there's, a, there's a bird a bird watchers tour goes into that wasn't Bansdale. an ad. <laughs> 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 there's um, the uh, there's a colony at Bansdale as well, which is a stopover colony for the bats coming to Melbourne. Mm-hmm. And um, I know the bird group bird watchers uh, have a tour that incorporate that colony into its uh, activities. Yeah. So yeah. So if, if you're in Melbourne and you haven't seen the bats, go down to Yarra Bend because it's quite a spectacle, spectacle to be very proud of. It's a Bel- Bellbird Reserve. Can't yeah, you also see them at the Royal Botanic Gardens or have they been no, moved along? No, uh, they left there in August 2003. Oh, and so this is, their, the this is their new site in Yarra Bend Park. And they still go back to the gardens to perhaps feed on the fig trees there. So there's really only one colony? There's only one colony in Melbourne. If you okay. want to see a bat during the day, the Omega bat, um, Bellbird Reserve in Yarra Bend it's, Park is the, is the place, okay. yeah. Mm-hmm. All right, we might... Um, go to another issue concerning a native species, um, a very contentious issue, and I'm going to bring up the new wild dog bounty for Victoria. Now, the wild dog bounty um, 
is going to start next year, early 2017. It rewards eligible Victorian hunters with um, a $120 bounty for each wild dog killed, whereby a complete wild dog skin must be presented at certain collection uh, points. The, The thing is that... Pretty much wild dog. The native, the dingo was um, in 2007 established as a protected species due to conservation concerns about the species with hybridisation between dingoes and domestic dogs identified as a threatening process. The thing is dingoes are very important in controlling our ecology and they also manage species such as the kangaroo and uh, feral, what we refer to as feral pests such as um, cats and foxes and rabbits. Uh, now with this wild dog bounty that they're bringing in, they say it, it's very hard to distinguish a dingo from a wild dog and they admit that, they know that. They say it's impossible to ensure that you are not inadvertently destroying dingoes with wild dog control programs in any given area where both exist. So even though it's a contradiction, isn't it? Dingoes are protected wildlife and it is an offence under the Wildlife Act 1975 to take or kill protected wildlife, yet the wild dog bounty is coming in. Um, I just wondered with your experience as an advocate for native and non-native species, what are your thoughts on this? And uh, Yeah, what are your thoughts on making this shift? Because we've got ecologists um, like Dr. Aaron Wallach and Ewan Ritchie. You know, there's such convincing, uh, you know, research that these programs don't work. I think they work very well politically. Hmm. I think there is a sort of a, um, you've got the bad guy out there, stick a bounty on his head, get your gunman out, take your man down, right? This is the sort of thinking that politicians think of, right? And it it has a very good, it's very sellable in the pub, the idea of sticking a bounty on things. Um, Unfortunately, the science doesn't back bounties as an effective control of what we call problem species. Um, there was um, a bounty on uh, foxes uh, um, uh, for a long time um, in um, in New South Wales and in Western Australia. And uh, at the end of that um, bounty period of, of four decades, um, there were four, more foxes in both those states than than were there before. There's before n- the bounty. There's yeah. no. Pre- what, you talk to old hands from the department, what was then the Department of Conservation and Lands in Victoria, and they roll their eyes when the word bounty is mentioned because it creates a gigantic amount of work for them um, and there's a perverse incentive uh, by hunters to um, source, source animal skins from anywhere they can. If I'm getting $120 to get a big dog skin... I'm going to find a big dog skin, whether that dog was a wild dog or another dog uh, or a medium-sized dog um, or a dog that I don't like. There's $120 in it for me um, to be able to present that dog's skin from stripped from its snout along a strip from its back in, and including its tail to the, to the, um, the department at a particular pick-up point. Now, what concerns me also is 
the the perverse incentive to trap illegally. So if I'm a I'm a hunter uh, or I'm a I'm a man or I have a group of mates with guns and we know now that we cannot use steel jawed traps, the two steel jawed trap, legally in the state of Victoria. But I've got a hundred hanging in my shed, and 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 my friend might have another hundred. There is now a significant financial incentive for me to go out and lay those traps um, in the bush in the hope of catching wild dogs. Now, there's a very good reason why the two-steel-jawed trap was made illegal, and that is there is overwhelming evidence um, of the in cruelty. Uh, so what concerns me is there is an increased incentive now for men to use illegal traps um, to um, to trap wild dogs and dingoes. And yes, the, the alpine dingo and the Victorian dingo um, is a protected species and there is good evidence that where dingoes are present, small native animals uh, are hanging on. Um, they do control uh, wild cats and um, remembering, of course, that wild cats, we've had breeding cores of wild breeding cores of wild cats in our forests now for over 100 years. Um so the the dingo uh, the wild dog has is has a role in in controlling them this is not to say of course that farmers do not have legitimate concerns about wild dog attack it's very distressing for them they go out in the morning and they see i've seen photographs of wild dog attack on sheep and it's um it's very nasty if you can imagine someone using a machete on a flock of sheep it looks like that um having said that the wolf and the lamb do have a long history um, and the ultimate destination for a lot of the lambs that do are destroyed is a slaughterhouse. So, you know, we have to look at the overall context in which all this is occurring and the most effective means of controlling wild dog attack uh, are well known. You know, the electric fencing. Um, don't run sheep up to... or don't have sheep properties adjacent to state forest. Um, use big stock on large properties. Large land holdings have large stock, so um, they're, um, the, the dogs are deterred from attack. And, of course, um, uh, the guardian dogs, the Maremma species, mm. are, are growing in popularity uh, as useful uh, control of uh, foxes on chicken farms and, um, and other kinds of ways. So the bottom line, it looks very much like the... Um, the decision to in, you know, to um, put in place a bounty system for wild dogs and foxes in Victoria was very much a political decision rather than a decision based on sound ecological science or landholder management. Mm. Mm. Yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting one because it is, you know, especially when you, you love animals, you don't want to see the, you know, awful conditions of, you don't want to see sheep harmed as well as, you know, our dingo population. And it'd be good to get rid of that. I think a lot of people are confused. Like if a wild dog is acting like a dingo in the ecology, well, then, you know, a lot of people argue, well, it's a moot point saying, well, that, you know, if we protect our dingoes only and kill the wild dogs. It doesn't get us anywhere, that kind of argument. The, mm. the way to controlling uh, foxes, one of the best known ways of controlling foxes is to create what they call a landscape of fear, which mm. sounds 
like something out of a movie, some horrible, horrible movie. But by having top-end predators that are well-known across mountain ranges, foxes will stay away from those areas. They know that they'll be in danger if they travel in certain valleys. There'll be whole ranges that are, have very sparse fox populations because they know that um, the top-end predators are in those areas. So they're scared. Um, and they, they stay away from areas where you have formed packs of dingoes. Um, the dingoes also uh, you know, have a role in controlling um, pigs and goats and, as you said before, kangaroo, the overpopulation of uh, grey kangaroos on, mm-hmm. in certain areas. Uh, so the, the, look, there's, the, there's no, um, there's no uh, you know, kind of really um, easy solution to, to a lot of these, these problems, but the increased use of good science and ethics is certainly the way forward rather than... Um, imposing uh, bounties, uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. things that let's stop doing things that don't work and start doing things that that do work. Yeah, mm. and ultimately, a, a sort of a similar a similar um, question comes in. There was someone that came to my university to talk about the badgers in the UK and their spreading TB, and they said, "So we we tried these culls and we're going to get rid of a number of badgers and see if that works." They did huge trials, doesn't doesn't work, but the government's still pushing ahead with it. And it just seems like we create the problem by having, um, by farming other animals. <laughs> if mm. we didn't have, yeah. if we weren't farming other animals, we wouldn't have this issue where they're going to be harming the economic benefit that we gain from those animals, which is the driver of, of these sorts of, um, these sorts of programs. Yeah. Mm. So true. Mm. Mm. Um, we might, the, the hour's being carried away, isn't it? I yeah. knew this would happen with Lawrence Pope. We might touch on Lawrence, another a campaign that you've been, you've been uh, had a big history with and a leader in is um, jumps racing. Um, firstly, in light, Melanie Shepherd, the daughter of a former thoroughbred breeder, published an article in The Age just this week titled From Prize Winners to Pet Meat, The Harsh Realities of Horse Breeding where she, among other things, refers to between 22 and 32,000 horses assorted every year at Nacri's and a substantial amount are ex-race horses. With your, your history there, is, do you think this is a really powerful message coming from the inside? Yeah, well, it's, it's very refreshing when you, when you do have people who have been involved in horse racing and horse breeding for years uh, come out and um, have a sort of road of Damascus um, change, if you will, and um, basically start to f- confront the truth, you know. And uh, I think it was M. Scott Peck that said um, uh, the, the 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 shift towards sanity is is a is a shift towards um, truth at any cost, just the truth, um, because uh, uh, the lies and the 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 willful turning aside from the reality, and, and as animal people, as animal advocates, we see this all the time. We see the the perpetuation of indefensible cruelty and indefensible treatment because there is a willful turning aside from the reality um, of our treatment of other species of all of all kinds. Um, um, so it's very refreshing to see people, and you get this sort of this sort of deep breath experience yeah, so that you can see that they've taken a, a breath and they're, they're going, well, wh- what have we been doing? What have we been involved with? And uh, what has been the cost? Um, and she talks about her father, you know, and his, um, 
his sense of wanting to a sort of a, a, a make amends to, mm. to to deal with the reality of that now because he was for 20 years a very successful very successful breeder had a lot of prize winnings yeah and what was really striking about the article was that the the writer the daughter of this um of this breeder she thought she had no awareness of what was happening to these horses if they weren't going on to race she felt that they were going somewhere and living out their lives on a pasture it just it was or in really, a pony club yeah or, yeah it was very strange to think that someone could be so much part of that or have that part of their family and not know what happens to these individuals once they they become unworthwhile to the industry mm. yes yeah, there's a lot of lot of mythology around uh, horse racing industry and one of one of which is there well, it's a sort of a mythology that animals that aren't uh, successful uh, end up on a farm somewhere or in the police force well we need a lot bigger police force I think we you know we, we need police force the size of the American one I think to to soak up all the horses um the reality is of course that most of them go to slaughter um and you know either for the horse meat for human consumption market or for the pet food uh, for the for the pet food trade, um, the big kill end of racing is in um, normal flat racing. That's where most of the thoroughbreds are uh, creamed off. So you might start with a thousand foals, and at the end of six years, you'll have a hundred. So what's happened to all the rest? Um, what's happened to where have they all gone? Well, most of them have gone to slaughter, and they they go to slaughter fairly quickly because uh, after their one and a half years of age, two years of age, the time trials show that, that those young horses simply are not fast enough. They can't move their bodies fast enough over a given um, length of ground and that's pretty much their death sentence. They're sent then to be killed. Um, what has that got to do with the, the glitz and the glamour? Well, not much. Again, if people saw the reality of horse racing, I'm sure, they'd, I'm sure most of the public would say, to hell with it, we'd rather slower horses, happy horses, and we'll go to the races anyway. You can race a horse fairly safely. Um, you could have a, a more, far more ethical industry. You wouldn't be able to complete, compete globally, um, but you could have a more ethical industry. If, you, if a horse was for life, like a dog or a cat, um, that would force the racing industry to the horses would be slower, but who would who would care? Um, they'd still be competing with each other on the Australian racetrack. Um, That's an interesting mm. point because I only found out the other day that we don't actually in Victoria uh, register. You don't have to register a horse like you do if you go and get a pet dog or a cat. You don't have to register. Mm, that's right. No, horses just disappear. And, so there could they're be a massive population. We wouldn't know the numbers. No, 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 no. That's right. Are actually um, part of that invisible population that get bred and sent to... That That's right, yeah. Some yeah. are left abandoned in paddocks, of course. There's a lot of horse neglect and the racing industry often points to those horses. But to me, that's an argument against horse neglect. It's not an argument for the continuation of the racing industry's unethical practices. Do you mm. feel, with the whole exposure of greyhound racing being, you know, there's this abhorrence for it now, um, do you feel a little bit hopeful that it this will ramp up the, you know... Um, anti-jumps racing or, or, or the horse race, expose the horse racing industry in a way as well. People start questioning, oh, well, okay, that's happening greyhound racing. Will that transmute at all? I'd like think, to think awareness? that. I, yeah. I, I would like to think that it all adds up to um, a, a 
towards the a shift in you know the reevaluation of those industries as being um, ethical and sustainable or not. But I, I just don't know whether there's going there is a transfer. Um, a lot depends upon, um, as I say, the political uh, machinery. The, the unfortunate element with these industries is they are big employers. They employ, they do employ a lot of people, and the arguments in defence of greyhound racing are exactly the same arguments that were in defence of bull baiting in the late 1700s in in, in Britain. You see, so you can't ban the, this activity because uh, you're depriving ordinary working men. Um, uneducated men, if you will, men and women, of their entertainment and their, their, their work and their jobs and so forth. And it took a long time to even get ratting banned in London. So um, that was the that was uh, rats were introduced into a large box in hotels and then uh, terriers would be introduced with certain qualities and they'd if you could kill if they could kill a certain number of rats within a certain time they'd be the champion and there were bets placed on this thing and there'd be large billboards out the front of the hotels ratting 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 tonight ratting Sounds so horrible. it was yeah it was vile but people ended up of course if you've got rats you need to have places that feed them and breed them and and, yeah. and so that once an industry a human industry is created around an activity if the victims of that activity can't speak out for themselves um You've got, um, uh, you know, you've got a job ahead of you getting that industry or that activity banned if there's an economic interest. But it has happened, and it, we, and it, and it will continue to happen. We will continue to make progress forward. Yeah, well, that's fantastic. Well, we are running out of time, as I knew we would. We didn't even get to really discuss this fabulous book um, Lawrence Pope has written called Some Touch of Pity. Um, I bought it a couple of months ago and I thought, don't know whether I've got the headspace for an, an advocacy-based book. You know, I just want something light or, you know, a little bit more entertaining at the time. But I tell you, I started reading this and it is a very human story about being an activism as well as about activism as well as going through the details of the different campaigns that Lawrence has been involved in for over 20 years. It is a fantastic read. It is a funny read. It is a very insightful read. I feel an essential read for any advocates out there. So please get your hands on Lawrence Pope's Untouch of Pity. And it's also available... As on Kindle. On Kindle. There yeah, you go. Save so paper. Save cheap. money. <laughs> nice and easy. Have we got time for some community service announcements? We do. Cool. Go for it. Okay. Um, tonight, which is um, Sunday the 27th of November, uh, there is a fundraiser for the Coalition for the Protection of Greyhounds and the Animal Justice Party, and that's taking place at the Reverence Hotel in Footscray. It's going to be good music, good times, and the Rev also serves excellent vegan food. I don't know if you guys have been there, but it's really, really good. <laughs> And entry is 25 bucks, so you can get along to that. You can get tickets on the door. Um, and then there's going to be the, a screening of Unlocking the Cage, which is a fantastic doco about animal rights lawyer Steve Wise, who's been trying to establish legal personhood for captive chimpanzees in New York State. I've seen it, and it really it's a fantastic doco. It's really good. It, it, um, it was came here in the... Uh, Melbourne International Film Festival. It's done a circuit of the world in their film festivals and it's really worth seeing. So that's screening this Tuesday night on the 29th of November at the Loop Bar in Melbourne CBD. Tickets range from $33 to $37 and that includes um, some live music before the or before or after the movie, some chocolate tasting as well as a six-course gluten-free vegan dinner. Whoa, so you get good. a lot for your – there's a lot of bang for your buck yeah. with that one. Um, Cheltenham Cat Rescue is having an adoption day next Saturday 
December the 3rd in East Bentley. There's kittens and cats available. And I'm looking at you, Em. I know. I've been thinking about it. Sea Shepherd Marine Debris Campaign. Um, This is a campaign that's been going for a while now, trying to address the five trillion pieces of plastic floating in the world's ocean. Um, They're having some beach cleanups. One's next Saturday, December the 3rd, at Surfers Paradise Beach. And there's one on Sunday, December the 4th, at Muttonbird Beach in Albany, in WA. Then um, there's a rally and march to save Sydney's trees and animals next Sunday, the 4th of December. That's going to start at Belmore Park near Sydney's Central Station and they're going to march to Hyde Park where there's going to be speeches and stalls and a vegan picnic. I was recent. Can I just interrupt for one yeah, second? Yeah, I was course. recently in Sydney and um, I was sitting with someone in where that lovely vegan restaurant is. I think it's called Bodhi. Yeah, Bodhi on the Park. Yeah, and I was looking at these trees going, they are just amazing. I was just Morton Bay figs, aren't with they? these mm. beautiful Yeah, there trees. is essential food for local for the, flying fox population. Yeah. And, and they're, they're, and they're, they're amazing trees on their own. Yeah, absolutely. They're, they're historic heritage based trees. And they're trees. almost iconic for Sydney. Yeah. They're beautiful. Absolutely. And I don't, it's not that area where they're chopping them down, though, is it? Because the lady with me was from Sydney and she said, you wouldn't believe it, they want to chop 120 down of these and. They're just divine and ancient and whatever for the light rail. Oh, I think that's and along Anzac like, Parade. It's on Anzac Parade, the light rail. But in the eastern suburbs. Still, still food source trees. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they're just tragic. Mm, so get along there if you're in Sydney. Yeah, that's, mm. it's, going to be, it's going to be a great day by the sound of it. Um, and volunteers are also needed to help on the day. So if you're available to help on the day, that would be great. Their website is savethetreesandanimalscampaign.com. Mm. That's all the uh, that's all the CSAs I have for today. I think Lawrence, did you have something you wanted to add about VAFA? Oh no, uh, I've just okay. um, you know if people want to uh, have any questions, they can write to me at PO Box three seven seven North Carlton. Is that, uh, is that friends of the bats as well? Uh, that's uh, that's both. Friends. That's yep. both. Okay. Yep. Um, Victorian Advocates for Animals or um, uh, Friends of Bats and Bush Care. And we've got the same PO box. Uh, yeah, three seven seven North Carlton three zero five four. Are you recruiting for anything for Friends of the Bats? Only with the Friends of the Bats, uh, only people with a, a vaccination, lysa okay. virus vaccination, um, and I'm always happy to answer questions or talk to people if they want to talk to me. Is there anything else? I was just thinking, if we've got a minute, because I don't think in psychot- Oh, we don't have a minute. All right, quickly, <laughs> wildlife in the heat. Put water things right. out. Yeah, always put water out. Um, um, plant a native tree and remove your backyard fruit tree net. Good <laughs> Beautiful. One. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Lawrence, for coming in. We really appreciate it. And we'll have to have you in again because there's pleasure. a million more things to talk about. It's always an honour. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks, Lawrence. And you've been listening to Freedom of Species on 3CR 855 AM. Um, we'll leave you with G Loves Holler. See you. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.